Well, good morning. My name is Matt. Uh, I'm a pastor here at the church. It's good to be with you. We're dismissing right now children for Children's Church. Um, there are uh, many happy, friendly people ready to meet them. And their goal is to help our kids understand better what we do in worship. During the month of September, we're going to take three sermons in a, a sermon series to help you understand better what we do as a church. Uh, we have done this for uh, this, a couple years now, intentionally just pausing at the beginning of September uh, to think through some of the core commitments that we have as a church. Uh, our general pattern in sermons and preaching is to move through books of the Bible. We do that much of the year, but at certain times of the year we pause and we take uh, particular things from certain places uh, for certain reasons, maybe leading up to Christmas or, or to Easter. Uh, here in the beginning of the year, we want to pause and remember some of the things that are most important to us. We do this for two reasons. First of all, because we know there are more visitors than normal this time of year. Now, some of you are perhaps new to Pittsburgh over the course of the summer. Some of you are returning here, maybe with a course of study or uh, as part of medical training, you're coming to Oakland. Or maybe you're someone who's lived in Oakland your whole life, but you're visiting with us. We want to tell you some of the things most important about our church, but we also want to remind ourselves what our core commitments are because it's easy for them to slide. Your bulletin insert today has the, uh, uh, the words of uh, first core value of our church. These words have changed a little bit over the years, but the general principle has been there ever since we were founded as a church plant 15 years ago. And that is, we are a, a uh, city reformed as a gospel-centered church rooted in the reformed theological tradition. As we could do entire courses on all that is implied uh, by that. Uh, but what we want to talk about today is this core commitment of being gospel-centered. Uh, we're going to uh, examine that by looking at a passage where uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church and reminds them that in his ministry he made a determined effort to really focus on a particular truth that was important, important for them to understand and important for him to proclaim. He was determined to proclaim Christ crucified. This aspect of being gospel-centered was true for Paul and it is a, a commitment that we share and that, uh, that uh, faithful Christians throughout the world share. First uh, Corinthians 1, 18 uh, to chapter 2, 10 and I will close, as I close, we will affirm together this is God's word. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, foolishness, uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the, again, in the month of September, we'll be thinking about uh, core values or core commitments. And I want, to, I want to acknowledge up front that the language of core value is more of a modern term. It's one that's used in a lot of uh, businesses and associations as they think about the danger of what they call mission drift. You might be familiar with this nonprofit uh, groups talk about this all the time, and that a group of people can be formed to do one thing, and then over time they can end up losing track of what they were supposed to do. This might happen because they start doing a bunch of other good things, and they get distracted, and their primary purpose gets diluted or even lost. Or it might happen because the thing they were supposed to do was very hard. They faced opposition and begin to back away from key purposes. We, we can see this in, in many groups. Uh, uh, I, I'm familiar, I grew up in a, a small town, and one of the important groups in our town was a, a group that owned a building called the YMCA. I grew up going to different a, a events there. We would uh, do karate, or uh, my mom would teach aerobics, or I'd go and play soccer, basketball at the YMCA. Sometimes we called it the Y. In my entire life growing up, I didn't know that the YMCA stood for Young Men's Christian Association. You may or may not know that. Um, and over ye- in, in its foundation, the YMCA had a very, very clear purpose. Um, they were dealing, uh, helping young men in a society that was changing rapidly. Over 100 years ago, as America became more industrialized and people moved to urban centers, a lot of people were lost in the shuffle. The YMCA intentionally brought Christian values and discipleship to young men that were struggling. They provided places to live, classes, and things to do. But over time, the things to do sort of crowded out everything else. 
And so I thought of the YMCA as just a place with a gym. All right, in my mind, you could have changed it to PWG, place with a gym, and it would have been all the same. Uh, a friend of mine worked for a board of directors for a regional group of the YMCA, and, and he would argue with them as they were letting go of their last remaining Christian principles. He would say, listen, we're already not young. We're, we don't have many men, and if we lose sight of being Christian in any way, we're just an association, right? No one wants to go to a group called the A, right? That doesn't, doesn't sound particularly interesting to anyone, the same thing can happen with other groups. Christian groups struggle with this, and Christian churches struggle with this. Over time, we can get caught doing so many things, valuing so many different things, our, our care for others around us, or the relationships we have, good and natural things, that we can lose sight of our central purposes. In the history of the church, there have been many countries where uh, been a, there was a dominant presence of a Christian church that began to fade over time and disappear altogether. And we go to parts of the world today where you would see beautiful cathedrals, but almost no one in them to worship God. We have mission drift as churches. And so we're, we're attempting to remind ourselves of things that are most important to us. The Apostle Paul does not use the language of core values here. Again, that's admittedly modern language. But he does a similar thing. He talks to the, the people in Corinth, a, a city that where distractions abounded, one of the, the wealthiest cities in the ancient world, located in a, a dominant, uh, important trade route, a place not far from Athens, the center of intellectual learning, respected throughout the ancient world. In this place, there were many temptations and there were many ways in which the message of the gospel was actually opposed, not seen as attractive. Paul says that in his ministry to the Corinth, Corinthians, he tied himself to his core principles. Uh, look with me uh, at the text. If we look at uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, the apostle Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He made a decision. Right, in a place where this, this easily could have been distracted or could have, he could have lost it in the shuffle, Paul said, I've made a decision to know something among you, that this is the essential thing. This is, we would say, I think accurately, a core value. Right, it's almost too weak to call it that. It is a commitment that is so deep to the center of what Paul is doing. Let me just make a brief disclaimer to make sure we understand it. When Paul said he knew nothing except Jesus and him crucified, he's talking about the central message he was sharing. I mean, obviously, Paul knew other things, right? If he was at a picnic in Corinth and they said, do you want a hot dog or a hamburger? He wouldn't say, I know nothing but Christ crucified. I mean, he could have normal conversation. And in the book of Corinthians, he would tell us later in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are, there are things of first importance. There's a gospel message that is Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. When he said he knew nothing of Jesus, except Jesus crucified, he, he's assuming the, that he was also proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. They're always together. He, he's just, he's highlighting one aspect of the gospel here, but the fullness of it. Jesus died and raised from the dead. It was certainly his message. 
And, and finally, when we read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul certainly applied the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, to a wide range of things. In other words, Paul didn't say there's only one thing to know. He, he took this central idea and applies it in so many ways. That's what the letter of 1 Corinthians is. But he is making a point. He's making a point here that in his ministry in Corinth, they could have easily lost hold of this central message. The Corinthians had many, many good things going on. It was a wealthy city. There were abundant opportunities for learning. There were so many good distractions that they could lose sight of the core message. In the ministry of Jesus, Jesus wrestled with this often. If you're familiar with the, the gospel, the books called the Gospels in the New Testament, the history of Jesus, Jesus would go into a town, for instance, in, in Mark chapter 1, and he had compassion on the people. He was healing them. He was uh, opposing spiritual powers. And the next day, everyone would rush back to see him, and Jesus had moved on. His apostles said, what, why aren't you staying? So many good things are happening. But Jesus said, I have a purpose. I've come to proclaim the message of the kingdom. As the ministry on, uh, of, of Jesus unfolded, it became clear that his message was not only to proclaim, but that he had a purpose that he would go to Jerusalem where he would knowingly and willingly die. And he would oppose any effort to stop him. Jesus was single-minded in his devotion to the cross, even when the good things threatened to get in the way. In Corinth, though, Paul indicates that it wasn't just the good things, but there were ways in which the proclamation, the message of the cross was actually hard. At the fundamental, deepest level, the message that he was committed to bringing was a hard message, and it was not one that people wanted. Again, look with me at the text. In chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he tells us this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The church, in the, uh, the early church, was made up of uh, Jewish people and non-Jewish people or Gentiles. In Corinth, they would have been Greeks. Not, not just ethnically, but they would have been tied in with all of the, the traditions and the wisdom of the uh, Greek antiquities. And they came, Paul recognizing, they came to the table with their own interests and their own demands. And the message that he brought was not what they were looking for. It's a real challenge, isn't it? It's, it's as if you were working for a, uh, a, a fast food company and they sent you out with uh, samples of your fast food and you, you brought all your hamburgers and your chicken nuggets and you ended up at a vegetarian convention. The very thing you're bringing is the thing that, that people are not wanting. That's why Paul was so interested in his core commitments here. So interested. I, I said, I've tied myself to this message because frankly, you all didn't want it. They wanted something else. They wanted a sign. They wanted a sign of power. Or they wanted a, a type of wisdom that was in line with all of their history of human learning. And Paul says, I preached Christ crucified even though it was a stumbling block, and even though it seemed like folly. Well, I think we can learn from Paul 
There are times where the ministry of the church is threatened by all of the good things and times where the central message of the church is actually looked upon as being weak or foolish. And in those places, a deep commitment, a deep commitment to what is most important is necessary or you will slide and drift and become something different. I'd like to look more carefully at the passage and just ask this question, why is it Paul saw this message of the cross as so central? What did he know about what he calls the word of the cross that we can learn from as we seek to be people tied to the message of Jesus crucified and raised from the dead? If you're uh, here as a member of City Reformed, I hope you join with me in just thinking, how do we, how do we guard this most important thing? you're new and if you're visiting we want you to know that you will learn most about us when you learn this is what is at the very center of who we are a message of the risen Lord Jesus who was crucified for us so three things uh, we see in the passage and boy weekend we could spend many weeks here I'm going to have to move quickly but three different things that Paul tells us about there's the word of the cross is power the, uh, the word of the cross challenges, confronts our pride, and finally, we know God. We know him through the word of the cross. So uh, we'll look at these things in, in not as much uh, detail as we might like, but we'll see the, the broad range of why the word of the cross is so central. So first of all, the word of the cross uh, is the power of God. We see that in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, again, he's admitting this thing up front that that, that first sound, at first appearance, the message that the Savior of the Christian church, the Savior offered to the whole world was a Jewish man who died the horrible death of crucifixion. That sounds like folly, but to those who are being saved, it's the power, the power of God. Paul was tied to this message because he knew the power of God was present and had been revealed in the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a whole lot going on in this verse. Uh, Paul reminds us that humans are by nature perishing. Uh, You you know that scientifically, right? We're we're all going to die. If you don't, I'm sorry to break the news this morning. If counselors available in the rear, uh, you can email Nauman, Nauman at City Reform. He'll walk you through that. we are perishing it's a truth we would rather not think about and our our culture has offered us so much in the forms of entertainment and technology and distraction we can we can push this difficult truth to the side and yet it keeps breaking in we are mortal and we will die The Bible tells us not only is that true, we get wise when we think about it because death is a pointer, it's a sign. It shows us something is not right. We not only are perishing physically, we are perishing spiritually because the God who made the whole world is separate from us. By nature, we are perishing and we are separated from God because of our rebellion. Humans, by nature, are not rightly related to God our sin, our disobedience, the, the determination in our hearts to be the center of all things is opposed to the God who made all things and who is himself glorious. 
central, life-giving, all-important. The problem the Bible hinges on is a problem of sin. It's, it's a problem that we are separate from God, not only in our record, but also in our dispositions. We, what we want most deeply is not for God to be lifted up and exalted, but for me to be lifted up and exalted. The passage says later on in chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus, who was crucified, was the Lord of glory. Glory, weightiness, significance, importance, our human nature is we want glory for ourselves. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself in his agonizing death of shame and misery, he took upon himself the penalty that we deserve to remove the barrier so that we could relate to God, that we could be rightly related to the God who made all things. The power of God is revealed in the cross. But, Paul says, in our perishing state, it looks like foolishness. And just, just to put yourself back in the first century shoes of these people, or perhaps in their sandals, uh, in the first century, to, to speak of the cross is not to speak of the sort of sanitized picture of the cross we get 2,000 years later. Even if you're not a Christian, you've seen so many crosses in your life, you know that, um, you know, that Christianity has something to do with the cross. And usually the crosses are somewhat beautiful. We might even wear a gold cross. In the ancient world, the crosses they saw most often were rough wood in the ground outside the city where people were dying, agonizing, slow deaths. It was designed and set up to be as terrible as possible. A public deterrent by the Roman Empire don't cross us is the message. And so, so if you spoke about someone dying on a cross, you're saying they died the worst death. They lost. If you were on a cross, you were in the absolute weakest place imaginable. Your hands and your feet nailed to the wood, hung naked before all passerbys as you slowly died over a period of time. And as people went by, they would have looked at those on the cross dying slowly and they would say, there is a loser. They lost. They lost to the Roman Empire. Most likely what they did was terrible, but even if their, maybe their rebellion is something we would admire, they didn't win, they lost, and they are losing in the most extravagant way. Powerless, shameful, the definition of foolishness. Not, not wise enough to get another route. And Paul says this, this here, this display of powerlessness, this display of weakness, this display of foolishness is our salvation because it's for us. The cross is power. The power of God accessible for us because our sin is nailed to Jesus. When we hear the message, Paul says, and we hear the proclamation of the cross and we believe we are being saved. That is, our faith connects us to Jesus. We are united to him. His, his life is our life. His death is our death. The penalty of our sin is paid and the barrier to God is broken and removed. It's really good news. 
It had all the outward appearances of foolishness, but it's really good news. The second thing Paul wants us to know as we look at the passage is that he highlights here the way in which the foolishness and the weakness of the cross is a direct and intentional confrontation with our pride. In other words, it was necessary for Jesus to die. He took away our sin. He took our sin upon himself. But the form of his death is designed by God intentionally to be weak and foolish because it confronts us in one of the most important ways. You see that language throughout. Paul, Paul that's really the argument he's making. He says, it looks like folly, but it's really power. And then he goes on to say this. This is really important to understanding the passage. He says, it's not an accident that it happened that way. Verse 19, for it is written, this is God writing, Paul repeating it, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In other words, God is committed to doing things in the world that are, a con that are confronting what we think of as wisdom. Now, the Bible recognizes true wisdom, it tells us that all people everywhere made in God's image have common grace and they can be wise and smart. But Paul is saying here that the default of our human system is we arrange ourselves in opposition to God and everything we think of as wisdom is building on the foundation of self and not God. All that we think of as wisdom, this wisdom of this age, this wisdom of a, a human standard is wisdom that exalts man and women, it exalts humans, and it de-emphasizes the importance of God. Things that otherwise could be very true, helpful, and in a good sense wise, are crafted into a system that tells us we don't need God. Many sociologists and philosophers who sort of wrestle with what's happening today and the 21st century Western world will, will tell us that the, the real thing going on in what we have a secular culture is that all of the structures and things around us work together to, to convince us we don't really need God. Some of it's intentional, some of it's not. But you were born into a world where it's sort of assumed by the people around you God doesn't exist. And we are able to delude ourselves for quite a while to think we don't need them. Well, God knows that. While the form of it might be new, that human impulse was present down through the ages. It was present in Corinth in the first century. Human wisdom sets itself in opposition to God as a system in its totality. So, so Paul says what God did in response to that is he came in with the weakest, seemingly foolish thing to do. And he chooses to bring his salvation through it. Because he's challenging and confronting our whole perspective on what is powerful and wise and good. And God says, you're going to find it here at the cross. God challenges what we do. Look at the different ways he does, does this. Verse 21, uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That was a mouthful, right? And you, you got to stop and, wait, wait, Paul, what are you saying here? Human wisdom as a system didn't know God. God was pleased. It was his purpose 
to make himself known, not in the powerful place, not in the exalted place, but in the place that is the absolute contrast to human achievement at the cross. Again, this is not saying that is, there's no human wisdom outside of, uh, of Jesus. It's not saying that, that non-Christians don't know anything. Or, that's not Paul's point. But he says, our human system moves us from God and God challenges it on the cross. He challenges it specifically, not only in, in the content and the form, but he says God has set it up so that through the preaching of the cross, people are saved. All right, now that's particularly relevant because that's what's happening right now. Whether you knew it or not, you're here, you're in the midst of that, all right? This, this could be the public proclamation, like a sermon, like what I'm doing, right? It's kind of weird self-reflection. Here we are. Surprise, we're in the middle of it. It could be a neighbor and a friend, a family member sharing, a, a small group or a class. This is the truth of Jesus. The proclamation of the cross is how God saves us. So not only is the, the thing itself appear to be foolish, but let's be honest. God's means of bringing it and making it known also seems foolish. It's comfort, comforting for me to realize that, right? If it was up to us, we would probably pick a different system. We would pick something other than one human being telling another human being through their message, this is how you know God, this is what he's done, this is how you can be saved from perishing. If you think about it, if it was your plan, you would probably at least have a little bit more song and dance involved, right? Something more theatrical. I mean, the ancient world, they knew about theater. Couldn't you involve some lions and tigers in a big conflict or something? And then at the end, Jesus crucified. Instead, Paul, Paul, this Jewish guy who got beat up wherever he went, shows up in Corinth. And the wise people are sitting around thinking, well, let's see if he's a philosopher. And the religious people are saying, let's see if he can do a miracle on demand, then we'll believe. And Paul says, I'm giving you Christ crucified and I'll proclaim it with my words. And that's how God's going to work here. Even that process is a confrontation to our pride. Again, a helpful reminder for me. Usually after preaching, I feel fairly vulnerable and maybe some of you come in here and you're like, oh, maybe I want it. Maybe we could get a little more action or entertainment, some bigger screens, and, and maybe there'd be room for animals and dancers and entertainment. And maybe the process of sitting and le listening to one broken, weak human like me explain God's word and apply it, maybe that's even a challenge to your pride. Because, you know, a church like this, many of you have far more credentials than I do in general life stuff. I'm well aware of it. Great comfort to me to remember God chooses to use the foolishness of preaching to make Christ known. I'll flip it here. Paul flips it a little bit at the end. He says, not only that, God chooses to save foolish people. Again, surprise, you're in the sermon. <laughs> Great comfort for me. God saved foolish people like me. 
And God chooses, even in the text says, he delights to bring the gospel message to those people that have not reached the pinnacles of cultural and worldly success. This is, again, so counterintuitive, isn't it? What we do in the church, or again, we, we all do this, but we do it in the church too, don't we? We say, if we could get really famous people to become Christians, then they would have a great platform and they would tell everyone and these famous, really attractive, cool people would convince everyone else to be Christians. And Paul says, well, actually, that's the exact opposite of what God's doing. God is delighting to bring salvation to the weak, to the vulnerable, to the outsiders, I mean, if it was us setting it up, we would think, all right, the smartest people are going to be Christians. The strongest, the, the richest, they have the most resources. And, and Paul does say in the church in Corinth, there were people who had resources. There were people that were smart. There were people that had a good birth, for sure. But Paul said, look around. The, the, the vast majority are far more foolish than you think. And even those who look good on the outside, you scratch the surface just a little bit, they know what's on the inside and they'll tell you their weakness. God is not interested in celebrity endorsements. He's interested in making his salvation known among the weak, the marginalized, the foolish. And good news, you, you all qualify. Isn't it, isn't it true that in many places, and many of you are coming to Oakland because you are, you are achieving appropriately, you're coming to pursue another degree or another plan or maybe a job has brought you to this area. Not all of us, but that's what is happening here, where we are. And, and maybe in the midst of all of that, you can begin to feel the disconnect between who you're expected to be in your program and who you really feel like on the inside. You know, there's a name for that. If you haven't heard it named yet, it's called imposter syndrome. And if you're in a, a, a higher degree program, most likely everyone in your program is feeling it. I'm not sure I'm as smart as I think I am. What good news we have here, friends. You're not. You're not as smart as the people around you think you are. And that is exactly where God wants to meet you. He's not meeting you at the, the end of your academic achievements. He's meeting you in your brokenness, your weakness, your willingness to admit the fact, I need grace. There's a lot more that could be said. I want to uh, close, uh, close with this third and finally. This is how we know God. We listen to what he tells us about himself. Uh, I'd like to say much more about it, but I'm just going to be very brief. You notice the passage is really uh, one that shows us the power of the cross, the power of this message, and much of it hinges on this contrast between what seems wise, what seems foolish, and what is God really doing. That's really the contrast, but there's something else happening, and it really shows up in the end, in the last paragraph. Paul says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. He says, through this message of the cross, there really is wisdom. And throughout, we'll notice that he, he says, we can be people who come to know God and to love him. Paul summarizes it this way in verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 
God has chosen to make himself known in our world. Things about God can be known in nature, but he chose to make himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made himself most known as he gave himself for us on the cross and was raised from the dead, from death. He defeated it. There's so much about Jesus we would like to know, his early childhood years or how he did the miracles and uh, we go on down the list. But when Jesus says, you're going to know me, he says, you'll know me here when I give my life for me. When the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men. You know, in relationships, friends, we have an option. We either listen to people or we make them to be what we want them to be. You had friends that done this, have done this to you, right? They don't listen. They keep treating you like their old best friend. They treat you like their mom or their dad or their brother. They keep imposing on you everything that they want. And you find yourself saying, you've known me for five years. Do you, do you still not know I, I don't like coffee, you know, sugar in my tea or something like that? You assume that I'm like you. And we know, many of you know, you're learning painfully the secret of a good relationship as listening and receiving what someone gives. Paul uh, Paul tells us here that God has given us his son. He doesn't tell us everything we would want to know about him. So much we would love to know about God that he just doesn't tell us. But he shows us this. We, we can't know the infinite knowledge of God, but we know what he's given us. He's given us his son. And therefore, we know we can trust him. In, in, life, life's, in our life, there is so much we don't understand and so much we can't figure out. We move, Paul says, uh, often through the darkness and we see God through as if it's through a dark glass. We know he's there, but we're often shrouded in uncertainty and confusion. Life is painful and hard. Jesus does not offer us complete knowledge of all that's happening to you. But as he says, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. If you want to know how holy God is, look at the cross. That's the penalty for sin. If you want to know how loving is God, God is, look to the cross. That's God's gift of life to you. If you want to know how committed God is to the salvation of his people, look to the cross. We see a God who will stop at nothing to bring his people to himself. And we can trust that. Let's close in prayer.